Well, thanks for coming back after a long class last week. I'm thankful you guys always return. Not that I doubt it. You guys are wonderful. But uh, I want to read with you two scriptures for a reference point for us. Uh, this is a, a pretty, they're all significant chapters, but uh, I guess I'll say just like last week, some of you may have wanted me to go for five weeks on the civil government. This one on marriage and divorce, it might be the same thing. Well, I'm just going to do the one class and there's plenty of stuff to give you to read if you like. Um, but I, I'd like to turn to Matthew 19 and then to Ephesians 5, just for two scripture references uh, on this topic. So it's going to be chapter 24 of the Westminster Confession of Faith this evening on marriage and divorce. And let's read one of the uh, more developed chapters here. Matthew 19, beginning with verse 3. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. By the way, uh, children, the word twain means two. And uh, it's an interesting story how Mark Twain chose his name. Uh, that's not his real name. Uh, and then uh, it does relate to what it means, number two. And then also when you see put asunder, that means divorce, okay? They say unto him, uh, verse 7, they say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there, were, there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. And there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Well, he's talking about at the end there, children, a eunuch is a person, uh, a man usually who is set apart not to be a husband or a father. Uh, sometimes there's a physical way of making that a surety. And then he's talking about some choose to be that way. You might say celibacy, some for the kingdom of heaven. And uh, that's an interesting thing to remember at the close of that chapter. I'm not going to comment because we're going to get into a lot tonight. Also, I preached on this text going through the Gospel of Matthew, and I'll reference that sermon along with another one in Matthew 5. So you can go back to those chapters on sermon audio if you want to hear that. I'm partly saying that out loud a lot of times. Partly I do want you to know about those resources where I get into the details, but also that helps me try to uh, have a little bit of self-control and not end up preaching the text, and then you're here for four hours with the lecture notes. <laughs> so turn with me now to Ephesians, please. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read uh, verses 22 to 33. And, uh, you know, both of these scriptures are, are, are well known, although I would argue maybe the least obeyed <laughs> in the Christian church. So it's not that we don't know them well, but I think it's nice to always have a scripture reference right before us before we get into the study. Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. 
Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Um, I've also preached on this text, so I'm going to be careful not to start getting into the points as I'm tempted to. But what I do want to highlight is this. Verse 32, marriage is actually an illustration of Christ and his church. That's in the whole section, but he highlights it there. He says, I'm really more talking about the relationship of Christ and his church. That's important for us to think about how we should be trying to give a good witness of that. And I remind you, one of the most significant metaphors of the relationship of God and his people, Old Testament and New Testament, again, is marriage. And so often when he's calling out his people for being uh, really going to the people of the world and particularly going to their idols, he criticizes them as being adulterous toward him as their husband. Ezekiel 16 would be a beautiful verse to go to, but I've gone there a lot. And for sake of time, I'm going to try to stick to the notes. So if you turn there with me, those are our two reference points I wanted to have for us. Um, but we're going to go now to the lecture notes I've handed out uh, um, of marriage and divorce. So on your bottom, it'll say page 157, where we get started. So I start with a couple of quotes to introduce the chapter, and then I'll start reading the section. So as I've been doing this class, I kind of ended up, I didn't exactly plan on it, but I started giving you the sections of the chapter. So that's another reason I need more time. Um, usually I would just expect you to read it, and then I'm going to teach it. But I've been finding it helpful to have just read it together, just a refresher, make sure we all have read it. Um, so I'll be reading those sections, and then this, how I teach uh, throughout, I remind you there's a lot of footnotes for you who want to drill down further and a lot of suggested readings. Uh, but let me start top of page 157 of Marriage and Divorce. Um, marriage, here's a quote, uh, marriage is a human contract under the limits and sanctions of a divine constitution. And the parties contracting pledge their vows of truth and constancy to God as well as to each other and to society. That's A.A. A. Hodge, his commentary on the confession. And I always like to point out, Fernando, your confession in, in Brazilian Portuguese, it's within his commentary. It's probably my favorite. I think it's one of the, most, the best commentaries. So A.A. A. Hodge, that's coming from that. Marriage is both a religious and civil contract and the foundation of community. Before I continue, 
you see a logical connection with what we studied last week of oaths and vows, right? And then obviously the civil magistrate. Uh, back to the notes. Marriage lays the foundation of a family, like the state and the church. The family is an ordinance of God. These three are the fundamental institutions of society. The family is more fundamental than either of the other two, for it was prior to them, and they derive their members from it. Anything, therefore, which safeguards or threatens the purity and permanence of the home is a vital concern to both church and state. That's Benjamin Green in his commentary on the Westminster Standards. And so related to that, I give you this quote from Thomas Manton in his opening letter. Remember, there's two brief letters to the readers of the Westminster Standards. Both of them talk like this, but his particularly says this. It's to the heads of families, remember, is, is one of them. And he says, a family is the seminary of church and state. So important to remember, the church should be focusing on the scriptures, of course, but so much of the scripture teaches us how to be, you know, people will often say, oh, just go to churches, all they talk about how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife. Well, you know what? The Bible talks a lot about that, and it's actually very important. The better we do as, as mirroring Christ as husband and wife as the church, it's the seminary of the church and state. So goes the family, so goes the church and state. Yeah, Josh? I find this so interesting to pick my brain. Or, uh, okay. I, I, I just want to cl- clarify, yeah. I didn't hit his brain. No. <laughs> <laughs> Lightning, struck Lightning struck, yeah, okay. Um, but, yeah, I would always cringe when I see these all-gender restrooms out in public. Yeah, and I know. They used to be called family restrooms. Yeah. And, Well, that's good because my understanding a while ago they were sort of doing the opposite with some things. So, uh, yeah. The ones I've been at. But okay. The point is that, like, Satan attacks the family. Oh, yeah. Because it's the most important unit yeah. of the three. Wow. And sadly, the church, I think, neglects the family often. I think we, uh, we don't take our, we abdicate our role, you know, the reasons we don't have a separate place we send our children for church. They need to be with their parents. Parents need to be teaching them. It isn't that we couldn't have a Sabbath class for kids, but you know what? The parents are to be teaching their kids, catechizing their kids. We're just be supporting them doing that. As, as Fernanda's been experiencing, wow, just little things she's doing with uh, the little guys, especially Gabriel right now, with just teaching the ABCs and different things. They absolutely adore it. Thank you so much. I mean, the parents have the biggest influence on their kids. We're always farming it out to someone else, like babysitters. And we're not taking it serious to raise our kids in the Lord close to us, teaching them. We're going to get, not long in Deuteronomy, Lord willing, I'm having a lot more commentary reading than I expected, but I'm hoping the next week, if not this week. But, you know, it's not long in Deuteronomy we're going to see one of the primary texts. Teach your children the ways of the Lord, whether you're walking in the way, whether you're home, put it on your doorpost, constantly be teaching your children. Because it really is the, the seminary of a church and state. And uh, I think we've lost that a lot, even in covenant churches, which should know a lot better. Um, anyhow, yeah, let's get back to the notes. Thanks, Joshua. So let me start, uh, top of page 157, chapter 24 of Marriage and Divorce, section 1. This is a brief one. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. I suppose we could spend a month on that alone in this, in this context of in our, of our nation and our state. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Now again, uh, those of you new to the class, 
I'm leaving the, the letter references, footnotes, and then all the scriptures. That's straight from the confession of faith to, you know, you can go to these different scriptures along the way. That'll be probably of more interest as we get to some of these interesting discussions that we're not as familiar with anymore. But let me go back to the notes. First of all, no homosexuality. Uh, I mean, I know I'm preaching to the choir, not spending a whole lot of time on that. There's been plenty of sermons on it as it's related in the text we've gone through. But uh, no man and man, no woman and woman. And when it gets that far in a society, remember in Romans, that's actually, as John MacArthur points out, is kind of how far along we are debased and how far along we are abandoned to ourselves. Um, Also, no polygamy, no bigamy, which is a result of the fall and its first instance was in the line of the reprobate, Genesis 18. That's something we really want to recognize. When a man had more than one wife, it was always in the line of the reprobate, never in the line of the elect. Why is that important? Because it is tolerated, just as we'll hear about divorce. Um, we see David and the kings have a number of wives. I think we also see it never really goes that well when you think about it, uh, even with uh, Jacob and the sons and the jealousy and the things. But what we want to recognize is that the first instance of a man having more than one wife in the scriptures is in the line of the reprobate. Okay. Back to the notes. God did not make Adam and Steve as the creation pattern, nor did he make Adam and Eve and Evelyn. Polygamy, and I'm quoting now, polygamy never received God's positive sanction. That's R.C. Sproul. Pay attention to perfect models in the estate of innocence for your redeemed lives and not to imperfect sinful patterns of the present estate of sin and misery. Quote, the original is the normal, the ideal, R.C. Sproul. In the beginning is to be our model, including what was not so. That's how Jesus goes back and forth with the people trying to trip him up in Matthew 19. And they're quoting Moses, Deuteronomy 24, we'll get into that. But he keeps saying, you're starting at the wrong starting point. You need to go back to before the fall, the design of marriage and the design of sexual relations. It's to be in the context of marriage between a man and a woman only. And you're starting in the fall. You're starting in the section of all this stuff has happened. All the, and so a lot of times laws are trying to restrict and restrain things from getting worse than they are. But it's not the beginning. It's not, it was not so in the beginning. We go back to the beginning before the fall for so many reference points. And I don't think we're really doing that. I, I think often as we discuss these topics, we're not often doing that. Uh, but we go back to the beginning. Okay, section two. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and of the church with an holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. I want to comment on that last one, but I'll wait for some Thomas Watson nuggets at the end I have for you. Uh, I think a lot of Presbyterian pastors are kind of overlooking that part and how they're advising a lot of young men. I'll, I'll get to that later. But notice, marriage was ordained What for positively? The mutual help of husband and wife. Do you notice that mutual? Not just the helping of the wife of the man, but the man helping of the husband. And all the women said, amen. Amen. (laughs) It's mutual help, right? Which is why I love to quote uh, Kevin Lehman, uh, his book called Sex Begins in the Kitchen. He's talking about if you want your wife to be ready and feeling close to you, do the dishes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have this shirt that, remember, um, and even though uh, my wife is very tired today, she's smiling right now. Yeah, do those dishes. Help me out. You know? <laughs> um, help me with the kids. Go to bed. 
And I do think a lot of any even Christian men neglect thinking of this, that it's a mutual help. Um, I got to stick to the notes for time, but I think it's important to notice also the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue. Having children is one of the main reasons of marriage. What does he say? Be fruitful and multiply. What's the prayer for Rebecca? I love the prayer. I love to, I love to bring it up at weddings for the woman. May you be the mother of millions. You know, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing. But, uh, but what's that ultimately for of the church with a holy seed? Raising covenant children in the church. Yes, we want to see people converted and come to church, but also with their whole households, right? Lydia, the jailer, in Acts 16, whenever possible. Uh, and uh, that's, we need to recognize that church growth should be just as much uh, covenant children. And we don't think of it that way anymore, but we should. And lastly, for preventing of uncleanness. Well, I, I think I'll wait till Thomas Watson's, Watson's quotes on that, because he, he brings it up a lot, actually. Okay, so I've, I've broken this down by letters because there's a little bit more here, as I will with the next one. Well, letters A and B. Bottom of page 157. Genesis informs our redeemed gender roles. Adam's wife was created for helping him glorify God in producing covenant children, increase, and the church with an holy seed in chastity. Well, you know, I've got to be careful not to get into long sermons. I've preached plenty of them, especially with Psalm 127, Psalm 128. But having children, and plenty of children, is actually something we're supposed to be thinking about doing in marriage. Now, as I've mentioned many times, Dr. Wayne Spear, my professor at seminary, uh, he pointed out, Psalm 127 speaks about uh, children are the reward to the woman's womb, but they're also the arrows in the man's quiver to shoot out and impact the world. He points out that everybody's quiver is not necessarily the same size, <laughs> right? But nonetheless, we want it to be full. Um, and uh, top of page 158, but before I continue, you know, it's funny, when I was going to announce we're having another baby, and I joke, I know we're the Van Locos, number seven, but it's really, I mean, it's funny how many people are like, you're what? You know, I feel like they want to say what they used to say to my mother after her fourth. She had four, I'm the oldest of four, 18 months apart, boy, girl, boy, girl, she was busy. But um, someone, I think her mother-in-law, said, you know how this happens, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, we know. You know, uh, There's just this disdain for having... <laughs> but you know, sometimes I almost feel like people want to ask me that. You know, yeah, I know. We're, like, we're trying to do this. You know? And uh, it's not a mistake. Uh, boy, one of the things I love, though, is we often bring the kids to play at the TJ Maxx. This is little tiny corner of a playground well, mommy will go do some shopping. And there's so many people with their little kids there. And everybody's always so happy to have them. You know, it's just a celebration of things. But um, having children for the church, especially to raise and build the church, is that's, that's, that's so significant. Well, top of page 158. The Hebrew word for helpmeet has the idea of counterpart. And again, when I preach through Genesis, you would, you would get this if you want to go back and look at it more. Uh, help me, yes, he's the help, but it's the idea of counterpart expressing equality of value while difference in function to, quote, fit the whole of what Adam lacked. You know, maybe we could think about it like this. Forgive my crude illustrations often off the cuff, but I, I often find that they, they were kind of worth it, so if you'll bear with me. So Gabriel has been asking for a while for a dinosaur Nerf gun. And we've been saying, I, I don't know if they exist, buddy. You know, well, Mommy found one at TJ Maxx recently. Oh, boy, he acted like we gave him the world. It was so cute. But it came with a couple of little eggs. But they were half, you know, two of them, but they were in pieces, two pieces. And they're not exactly the same on each side. 
but they, they fit together to make the whole egg. And one of them has, you know, the female parts, the other the male parts to click them together. Kind of like that, the helpmate, the counterpart. I, I hesitate to say, like, we're incomplete until we're married. You're going to see things I want to bring out about singleness. You are complete in Christ. You are complete as a creation of God. You don't need to be married to be complete. But there is that essence of marriage of the two becoming one, although that's a figurative speech. But what I want you to see is the wife, the woman, is equal in value of making that whole egg, right? And um, it clicks together the two pieces. And she has a different function. Can't be the same as man, right? Which could be a whole lot of messages on that right now, right? But uh, physically, but not just physically. I think emotionally. You know, First Peter 3 talks about the wife as the weaker vessel, but it, it, it actually has the idea of a beautiful vase to be preciously cared for, right? Um, so I really want to emphasize that because, yes, we do recognize the distinction of gender roles, husband and wife. Uh, we don't get into that as much in this study. We've preached on it plenty of times. But it is important to remember that the, the man and the wife are equals in value before God. They have different functions. And, and really, what does Adam say? Oh, finally, right? Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. Uh, someone I can talk to, my companion, you know? Um, that, I think, deserves a little emphasis there as we think about the word help me counterpart, not just, you know, help me do my job. That's not how we want to look at our wives. But we do need your help, <laughs> and we can't do the same without you. And that's true, you know, organically as a whole, just our men and our women. We need everyone. We need uh, our different uh, roles and, and uh, ways we're made. Okay, letter B, top of page 158. Sex is not restricted to the purpose of procreation. Go to the Song of Solomon. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 to 5 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 7 actually says you're not to forsake yourself to your husband or wife except for times of fasting. It's actually really important for Christian men and women to know, husbands and wives, your physical intimacy is very important. There's a story uh, about in, a, in Puritan times where a man was disciplined because he wasn't having sex with his wife. And in seminary, I learned about a, a modern version of that, where if the man wasn't going to be having conjugal relations with his wife, they were going to discipline It would be terrible to, to do that, hold that against each other. And the thing is, Satan loves to do that, keep physically away, and that can keep you spiritually away, and that can keep you from just being intimate in a way that God has made marriage to be. So I want you to see that it's not just for having babies. Quote, puritanical. Now, I'm playing with that word, okay, because that's often what's said. Puritanical it, it is puritanical, but I really mean puritan in a good way, to teach that marital sex is good and to be enjoyed for its intimate and pleasurable expression of mutual covenant love. And as you've heard me say before, I want the young people to be here. I want them to hear this. They don't hear this enough in church. That's why they go to the world and other places. And then they get it wrong and all this pain and, and mistakes. Sex in marriage is a very good thing. And uh, it's not something to feel embarrassed to talk about it. It needs to be in the right context, but the church should be talking about it. Anthony Silvaggio, actually from my hometown and just a few years ahead of me, was also my professor for a while in seminary. He's a lawyer. Also, he's a minister. Uh, Anthony Silvaggio points out that the Puritans, quote, were instrumental in unleashing sex from the chains of medieval theology, then thought to be a necessary evil to bring children into the world. The Puritans were no prudes when it came to sex. In fact, Westminster divine William Googe declared that married people should engage in sexual relations, quote, with goodwill and delight, willingly, readily, and cheerfully. 
That's not how people tend to think of Puritans, but they encouraged husbands and wives to be making love regularly. A caution here, however, sex in marriage should be private and not casually discussed. I think of, uh, I remember I was bowling once and one of my friends in college was really frustrated because in his church, people would almost, kind of almost brag about their sex life to each other. That's not appropriate. Okay. Um, nonetheless, there is no sin in sexual pleasure within its proper conjugal context. And when you see that word children conjugal, it means man and wife being together sexually, physically, as God has ordained for marriage. The sin is when sex is outside of wedlock. Quote, true love involves commitment. That's uh, Roland Ward in his commentary. True love involves commitment. Yeah, Josh. Uh, I'd hesitate to call it an act of worship, but I mean, obviously, everything we do should have an aspect of devotion to the Lord. Yeah, um, he's asking, should we consider sex an act of worship? And I, I would hesitate to say that, just as there's a lot of things we do. But I mean, the scriptures say, whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, do it all to the glory of God. I think that can be controlled by the proper moral and context and things. Um, because I'm hesitant to talk about anything as worship that's not formally corporate worship. So, for instance, I love listening to the Christian radio, and I know they're calling those worship songs. I would not have them in worship. I would go to Christian concerts, but I would always have the understanding, I'm not going if it's going to be this big worship thing. But for me, you know what I mean? I, I'm very careful about the word worship, but I know we have our private worship. But I think, you know, maybe the way to think of it is, is the way worship is discussed in the scriptures, it's related to... You know, the, pre, the word of God, the teaching, prayer, you know, fasting, those kinds of things. So even fasting being an act of worship, actually, we looked at earlier in the confession. So I'd hesitate to call it that, but it is called good and holy. And I'm going to bring up a scripture in Hebrews on that, in that later. Um, sure. Um, chapter 24, section 3 now, middle of page 158. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. And therefore, such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. A little while after I started ministering here, um, I was surprised to meet with a, a certain family and um, you know supporting them with some some legal issues and some harassment and stuff of a of a boyfriend that's trying to get rid of in court but I had to ask him this question while I was also supporting them and I was surprised that it didn't seem to be a good response to my question and my question was this first of all why are you dating a Muslim and why are you going to Las Vegas with him all the time that seemed to be lost on them. You know, a lot of times people want to deal with this or that, but it's actually part of the context of you shouldn't have been in that at all anyways. You know? And uh, it should be a given that you're not dating a Muslim if you consider yourself a Christian going to church. And you shouldn't be going to Las Vegas out of wedlock, let alone whether that's wise to go there unless you go to a church that I know if I can recommend there. <laughs> you know? Um, you'd be surprised how many times Christians just completely, absolutely ignore this stuff. So it's important to, to review together. And for important for our young people to hear it. 
Um, letter A, marriage can be arranged but with consent. I give you Genesis 24 as an example. Uh, notice it's, it does say they have to be able to give their consent in our confession, uh, but it has to be within religious barriers, Acts 17.26. But even Genesis 24, Abraham says, now we thought about this with oaths and vows, right? He put his servant, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me, you will not bring home a, a, a wife for Isaac uh, from someone who's not part of my family, not, not part of related to the, the growing faith. Uh, but, uh, so we see it has to be not unequally yoked. Uh, but we see when he goes there, Rebecca, you know, it, there is a bit of an arranged marriage here. The, you know, Laban and the family is involved, the brethren are involved, but they do ask her if she wants to go. So she doesn't, it's interesting, she doesn't meet Isaac until she gets there. And they didn't have cell phones and email and even mail, right? I mean, like, I mean, she's pretty much not going to see the family again. It's amazing. But she does give her consent. She says, I will go. And so we want to recognize that the family should be very much involved. I'll reference that. Uh, but there has to be a willing, uh, a willing consent. Um, Celibacy, letter B, celibacy and singleness, celibacy meaning not having sex because not being married, uh, while recommended by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he actually recommends it. He recommends singleness. He recommends celibacy because you have more time to serve the Lord. Uh, it's not more holy than marriage. That's one thing we want to recognize. They're pointing out, you know, the Catholic Church gets to the place where, you know, if you're a priest, you can't get married. Reformation turned that around, Right. Uh, we thought about that last week too. One of the things Luther did after a while was marry a priest, uh, marry a nun, and he was a priest. Oh, they did not like that. But um, uh, this, this idea of a forced celibacy, we thought about that with oaths and vows. Yes? Is this in the context where Paul's talking about, like, he wished that every believer could have the relationship with God he has? Yeah, I'm sort of paraphrasing here. Um, yeah, I think he's more discussing about the freedom of being single allows you to serve the Lord with your time more. You know, he says if you have a wife or a husband, you are focused on serving them. Now, that doesn't exclude family worship, and then if you're having children, but it does make it more challenging to, you know, you can't just up and go do something real fast. I don't know, mission strip across the, you know, you can't just uh, um, give yourself to being out all night with a men's study. you got a wife at home waiting on you, you know? Yeah, doesn't he say that? Essentially, I mean, yeah, I mean he's a... Like I Yes, he does. Yes, but I think it's yes, but I think it's more about the service, the uninterrupted and ability to serve more than it is. Um, but it's not that it's excluded of the idea of a relationship. No. Um, letter C: No Christian may be quote unequally yoked with a non-Christian. First Corinthians seven, Second Corinthians six, uh, Genesis six one to three. You can't marry a non-Christian. You cannot marry someone who's not a believer. That should be understood as obvious. It often is not. Uh, to keep this, or it's frankly just ignored, I think. Uh, to keep this command, one needs to avoid... Oh, excuse me, I want to go back to letter B. While celibacy and singleness is recommended by Paul, but it's not a holier state, we're going to say the same on the opposite side. I would say this, until someone is married, they do have the gift of singleness. Because they're gifted by God to be in the situation they're in, and they are not to be with someone outside of singleness, outside of married. So we all are called to singleness until we're called to be married, if we are. Uh, Becky, you had a comment? Yeah, I think that's probably why um, Paul qualifies it, saying if you do want to be married, just know that there are going to be more, more responsibility, yeah. more care. Right. Whereas if you're 
resolve yeah. without, without distraction. Right. Okay, back to letter C. Uh, to keep this command, one needs to avoid situations which will create difficulty in obedience, such as dating a person who is not eligible religiously. That's J.I. Packer. So, for instance, no evangelical dating. You know, Some people try to say, oh, well, I'm going to try to win this person over to Christ. That's why I'm dating. Well, that's really naive. <laughs> we're told a lot about what kind of communications, bad communications corrupts good morals, and we're told to be careful about the leaven of this world, right? You know? Um, I, I know there are probably cases and things that can be pointed to, but um, Protestants also should not marry Catholics. It also is unwise for Pado and Credo Baptists to wed due to fundamental difference of raising covenant children. Let me tell you, as I've worked with a lot of married couples who didn't think this mattered until later, then it starts to matter, and it is a big deal in the marriage. Okay? Especially Calvinists should not marry Arminians. Van Dixhorn rightly enjoins us, Christians need to be married, uh, excuse me, this by the way, this is something to highlight. Let me actually say it correctly now. <laughs> Let me start over. Christians need to be marriage maximalists and not marriage minimalists, as it is the trend of modern Western society. If you are a reformed Christian, you should not marry an unreformed person of any kind. We should be marriage maximalists, not marriage minimalists. Now, I would say this. As you know, uh, my marriage with Fernanda had a, a broader scope to it, but we spent time looking for people who were technically, you know, in, on paper, you know, more officially yoked, but we found persons were not. And we started to talk with the children and, and the elders about, you know, if we find the right person and they're willing to learn and submit and follow the ways, and I have it all listed there on my dating sites I was looking for, and uh, sometimes it's got to really find the right person. So I don't want to make it too pigeon held there, but if the person's not willing to follow and submit to the leadership of the church, uh, and, then then that's not really something you want to mess around with. Uh, yeah. Arminians can be saved, though, right? Like, oh, why do you ask me all these hard questions on <laughs> when I'm being recorded? Okay, I, I, no, I'll answer the I'll answer the question. But uh, boy, I, I've seen professors squirm with these questions in seminary. Um, technically, Arminianism is not Christianity. Uh, but does that mean there can't be mistaken Arminians? Yeah. I mean, I used to do Christian concerts, and a lot of the places I played, I think they are technically Arminians. I don't know they could even know that about themselves. Um, uh, just as I think it's, it's technically people can be mistaken. There are some people who would write me off for saying that right now. But I think it's fair to say there could be some who would be a true believer, and for a lack of influence and background and things, they're not really educated as they could be. We might point, this is not a perfect example, um, I'm going to mute you pretty soon. No, just kidding. <laughs> but I'm thinking of like Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila approach him, and he's not teaching everything as he should be, and he's ignorant to some things. But then he changes when he's taught, right? Um, I, I, it's not a perfect example, but they don't seem to countenance him as an unbeliever, though he has some significant things he needs to improve upon. However, I think there are some adamant Arminians who definitely couldn't be Christians. It's not possible. I mean, if you're just going to deny God's sovereignty constantly, and you're not going to be willing to look at any of the scriptures that so clearly say these things, uh, you know, I, 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 you, at some point, you just got to go to Romans 9 and say, yeah, I don't, I don't think so, you know. Um, I, I think it's dangerous, though, to try to, you know, just rule everyone out or individually feel it. Because you know, the other thing is sometimes people don't know how to communicate, or they don't have the tools, you know, of the trade, so to speak, and they may be given the benefit of the doubt. But, boy, yeah, you're asking tough questions there. <laughs> 
It remains to be said. Don't marry an Arminian. Now, you want to invite him to church over time? You know, maybe something, but you know. Okay. But then you got to be careful. You're not like hanging out there like a carrot because you may not have a real conversion or change, right? Um, also, it make, back to the notes, it makes no sense for married Christians to be members of and, are, and participate in different congregations. And I've seen that. Uh, remember, one flesh applies to all of life, especially church life. Also, no noble Christian should foolishly marry someone in the visible church that is, quote, notoriously unstable in the ways of the Lord. To do so is not only sinful, but renders disastrous results for all. You know, there's people who do marry people that are technically in the church, but they really don't look like they're meeting the qualifications, what to look for in a good husband or a good wife, you know. And premarital counseling, you know, a lot of what you do is you go to Ephesians 5 and do they seem to be met? Not perfection, but... You don't want to be marrying someone who technically is in the visible church, but it's just a mess, you know? Um, unreliable, up and down, all these things. And by the way, um, I forget which preacher it was on KPRZ I was listening to a few months ago. I love what he said. He was talking about this. He says, you know, I wish more of you, uh, and he was, he was great, he was a black Baptist pastor up in L.A., so he really, you know, everything is just woo and um, the, his style, you know, and uh, he's like, I wish more of you would meet with me before you get engaged, because I'd stop most of you. Most of you come to me after you're engaged, and then I have, and he says, and I consider it a success when I cause many of you to unengage. <laughs> Because <laughs> a lot of you don't know what you're doing, and you're about to enter into a horrible marriage. <laughs> I'm like, wow. <laughs> he was really saying, yeah, he was really emphasizing that. A lot of you are, oh, and by the way, I, I hope I can remember this properly. It was great advice. He says, you know, some of you who are just waiting around, speaking, especially speaking to ladies, you're just waiting around, waiting around on this man. He says, some of you have to recognize that um, it's over, it's, it's, uh, it's out of date and past due. It's time to move on from the relationship because you're treating it like somebody you're supposed to just keep putting money into and hoping they're good. No, the guy needs to prove he's a real godly man. Okay? This is why, actually, if you don't mind my shame, Fernanda, one of the reasons she hesitated with marriage is, uh, well, obviously, I believe the Lord was keeping her for us, but uh, she said, you know, men, the young men my age, I never want to marry them. They're too immature. Can't count on them. <laughs> if you don't mind, I might... Gage, if I can tell you, can I share later another reason you hesitated to get married by what you observed in Brazil and in the church? Okay, later I will. Sorry I threw that at you like that. You can say no, I will submit to that. Okay, well, back to the notes. John Murray writes, the children of God are the salt of the earth. When the interests of godliness do not govern the people of God and the choice of marital partners, irreparable confusion is the result and the interests not only of spirituality but also of morality are destroyed. Here, Genesis 6, 1 to 3 and following, he continues to say, we have emblazoned on the story of the episode in the history of mankind the great principle that marital life is to be guided not by impulse or fancy, but by considerations which conserve and promote the interests of godliness. End quote, top of page 159. Still, once married, the covenant is binding. 1 Corinthians seven thirteen. You marry an unbeliever, you know what you're doing, now you're married. 1 Corinthians 7, they're asking him, should I stay married to this unbeliever? He says, yeah, you have to. He says, now if they want to leave you because you're a Christian, you can let them leave. But otherwise, you can't leave. you're not allowed to leave. Now, I think the context is particularly people who have become Christians, but their spouses did not. But they're not allowed to just say, oh, I'm leaving, I'm going to go marry a Christian now. No, 
that, bind, that, that covenant bond is still binding because it's not just a Christian thing. That's why we recognize marriages of the, through the state and of all different religions are real marriages. Why? Because it's a creation ordinance before the fall on all of society. It's not just a Christian thing. In fact, uh, I think Fernando said in Brazil, your culture and your churches usually go down to the, to the courthouse to get married, right? And then you come back and you might have a sort of a service later to thank the Lord. But just for worship-like kind of thing, yeah. Um, so pastor requires premarital counseling before he will marry anyone and only members of the church. Reflecting R.C. Sproul's concern, quote, we live in a culture where people so often get married on the basis of emotion rather than the basis of principle. Again, we need to be maximalists. We don't want to look for the bare minimum we have in common. We should be looking for the best possible combination of things we have equally yoked, okay? Um, there are other things like personality and interests and gifts, but, you know, a lot of that stuff, you know, if you made a formal covenant with the same commitments, those, those things usually work out. Um, I would say this also, you might recall that one, this is well before my time, but I've read all the minutes, and I'm going to refrain from explaining and speculating on some things, but uh, you know, years ago, this church went through a big loss, and it's because Pastor Bell refused to marry someone in the church. As I looked at the notes, I think he was correct, but a lot of people don't like it, and guess what they do? Go find someone else, go find another church. Most people, I'll oh, do whatever you want, but Pastor Bell was doing the right biblical thing. You, know, you often pay for that, but trust the Lord is, uh, will bless it. Uh, section 24. Uh, sorry, one second. Oh, do I have my pen here? I'm noticing uh, a tiny typo. I don't have a... If I don't circle it now, I'll forget. There should be a space between WCF and 24. Not that you need to worry about it, but I'll fix that. Okay, section 24, chapter 24, section 4. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden in the word, nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. The man may not marry any of his wife's kindred, that means family, nearer in blood than, the, than he may of his own, nor the woman of her husband's kindred nearer in blood than of her own. What are we talking about here? Let me explain. <laughs> Consanguinity. We've had some sermons on this stuff, by the way, folks, as we've gotten to certain places. Consanguinity. You may not be married in a situation of consanguinity. It refers to blood relations. And affinity refers to corresponding relationships among in-laws. So you can't marry a certain degree of blood relations of your spouse. If your wife dies or your husband dies... You can't marry uh, people who are too close of their own family, blood relations in that sense. You may not marry close. I'm going to try to stick to the notes pretty closely on this because it will be more careful and accurate than, uh, than I can speak to off the cuff because it, it doesn't come up as much. But You may not marry closer than first cousins. Now, you might be surprised to say you can marry first cousins, but you may not marry closer than first cousins. Uh, I do have uh, an uncle and aunt who are first cousins. Uh, it is genetically dangerous for childbearing, but more importantly, it is morally wrong according to the word. Incestuous marriage vows may never be binding. If that happens, they must not ever be allowed to stay married. 
The second part of this section on not marrying the siblings of a deceased spouse is difficult. The Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America testimony, so they keep the original Westminster Confession, remember? But there's some places on the side with their testimony, they might, a lot of times they add some really nice stuff. Sometimes they'll say, we don't agree with this part. And it's usually what most American Presbyterians take out of the Westminster. We go with the original. Um, they reject it as unscriptural. I think this is where they go a little further than most. At first glance, it looks like it's contradicting the Leviterate law in Deuteronomy 25. So children, remember we studied the end of this book on preparing for marriage, and it was going through Ruth, and Ruth, uh, Naomi, marrying Boaz, and Boaz said, I can't marry to you, I make sure the closer in kin has the right to marry you. Right? So there is an aspect, sometimes Leviterate marriage, though it wasn't that close, the brother is supposed to marry uh, the wife of a dead brother so that they can have children because there were no children in that line. So it could almost look like it's violating that principle. Genesis 38 would be the other place to look to see that. But Van Dixorn informs us that, quote, the long parliament in the 1640s, now remember, that's part of the, um, that's part of the government of England. They're the ones that called upon the church, the reformers, to put together a, a Westminster standards more biblical for, this, for the three parts of Britain. Long Parliament in the 1640s struck out the last line of the fourth paragraph. And maybe because uh, in royalty they tend to marry pretty close sometimes. <laughs> uh, an action which the Scottish Kirk, when you see Kirk, that's the Scottish word for church, ignored. Indeed, the Church of Scotland ignored all of the revisions to the Confession of Faith imposed by the English Parliament in the 18th and 19th centuries. This final line came to be seen as too restrictive, and so the Americans removed it from their confession. Okay, it looks like most Americans... If they don't have our original Westminster standards given to us you know, really through Scotland uh, because they didn't allow any of the changes Parliament tried to make, mostly with church government, um, they, they've removed this part about not being able to marry someone like that. Uh, so someone dies, so let's say a certain man, his wife dies, and he wants to marry her sister who's still living. Most churches in America would say, yeah, there's no problem with that. But our confession says that's forbidden. Okay, And we're going to look at the scripture why. Nonetheless, along with other conservative Presbyterian churches in America today, we affirm the original preserved by the Scottish Church, Westminster Standards. John Murray defends the view that our confession is teaching in his Principles of Conduct, which we have that in our library. It's excellent. Uh, he explains that in Leviticus 18, 18, 20, 14, 17, 21, Quote, the expression, take a wife, indicates that more is involved than an act of sexual intercourse. You can look down at the footnote for 440 for more on that. Not irreverently, uh, he points out that in 1 Corinthians 5, the man guilty, this is New Testament, the man guilty of fornication, not even named among the Gentiles, is specifically guilty of affinity. That's what he's guilty of. Marrying someone too close in, on the other side, too close in relations. And that the argument being based on Leviticus that Paul gives shows that Old Testament ethics still apply in the New Testament. I preached that once, and I actually remember uh, um, Mr. Uh, Raglan, you came up to me afterwards and said, wow, thank you. I'd never heard a sermon on that before. And that's what I love about this church. They encourage preaching the whole counsel of God. I wasn't expecting anyone to respond to that sermon like, wow, that was great. <laughs> but the whole word of God, right? Um, he adds, John Murray adds, the Leviterate law could well be an exception to meet a certain exigency and is quite compatible with a general provision that a man may not marry his deceased brother's widow. 
The latter could be the rule, the leviterate law, the exception, and the extreme exigency contemplated. I'll let you dwell on that to move on, but I, I think he makes an excellent argument. He also notes that a widow can be called the wife of her deceased husband is easily demonstrated. Genesis 38.8, Deuteronomy 25. I'm going to flip the page here with you. Ruth 4 and 5. I'll let you look at those other scriptures, top of page 160. The Hebrew has a word for widow, but it is not Old Testament usage to identify a widow as the widow of such and one. As the above instances show, it is the usage to call her the wife of such and one. Um, uh, that's a lot of technical stuff there. I'm going to just, I got it there for you to be able to meditate on if you're really interested in this. Uh, yes, Abraham. Uh-huh. He said that as they were thinking of getting married, he said, there is someone closer. Right, I referenced that a little while ago. Yeah. Uh, but you're saying here that. Well, I'm not, I don't think that we need to conclude there's someone closer, but that doesn't mean that it's to the level of it would be sin. Okay. Yeah. Um, more to the point. In reference to our precise question, the matter turns, and I'm quoting again, the matter turns out on the implications of Leviticus, now he has it as 1616. If look, you look at footnote 443, it actually should be Leviticus 1816. I think that's a typo because I, I only find it there. Uh, there a man in Leviticus actually 1816, a man is forbidden to marry his deceased brother's widow. And again, 1 Corinthians in the New Testament shows this, this affinity thing still applies. A.A. Hodge points out that, quote, all branches of the Protestant church, Episcopal, Lutheran, and Presbyterian, have maintained the same principle in their confessions of faith or canons of discipline. If you look down to the footnote for 444, I give you more. Main thing I want to say here, I think we understand you can't marry your sister. You can't marry closer than your own first cousin of your own blood, right? We understand that. But this idea that you can't marry the sister of your dead wife or can't marry the brother of your dead husband that's sort of surprise that's the affinity question so we're focusing on that and what they're pointing out is this is the standard belief of church history and anytime we modern people think we're so smart we just start slashing things off i argue it's more ignorance than anything and perhaps arrogance why has it been there all this time if you look at these scriptures and these arguments i don't think we should be changing the confession on this I think that's a good point for it. Okay, section 24, uh, section 5 of chapter 24. I'm going to try to keep rolling along here. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage, so you're engaged, but you found out that the person you were engaged to, by the way, at this time, engagements were pretty serious, almost like marriage. So, um, And you can think of, you know, Joseph was going to get, get rid of divorce Mary because he thought it was another man where Jesus came from, right? Um, but it was a big deal. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce, and after the divorce, to marry another as if the offending party were dead. So I have a brief note on this. Divorce is allowed by Scripture in restricted instances but it is, as, it is a result of the fall and never encouraged in Scripture. Research shows divorce to be the number one detriment to the security of children and its rate to increase in subsequent marriages. That is, if you've 
uh, I remember this from my book on marriage. It was a secular book in community college, but they said the number one problem for children is divorce. Ruins, takes away their whole foundation. Uh, that doesn't mean that marriages don't have problems. There's not all kinds of things to work through, but still, we, I think parents tend to not really recognize how significant it is when you sever that and you break that home, uh, even with all the challenges you might face. But the other thing they say is, uh, the more, when you get divorced, you're much more likely to get divorced again. Once you've done it once, you're just much more likely to keep doing it, which is why we have these serial marriages, as people speak of. Um, marry well once and live well married until death. When divorce occurs, notice only the innocent party violated by adultery is qualified to remarry. That, I think, is worth thinking about, but I'm not going to go. What I'd, what I'd like to do is, if I could share two, two anecdotal things. First, my wife and I have been saying how thankful we are to be married still and on our third baby uh, cooking. <laughs> and as you know, we've had to work through a lot of challenges. And there were temptations sometimes to maybe think about, can't do this anymore. And there was certainly influence from others toward that end. And I just want to say, practically, it's so worth waiting and working through things. The alternative is always made out to be better, but it isn't. This isn't denying there are places, as this talks about, for divorce, but it is a recognition of failure. It is, it is not ever something spoken of well. The Bible, God says he hates it. And the big reason is because it affects having covenant children in the church, um, in the prophets. I'll share this other thing. There's a, a person who was confiding in my wife recently. Not real comfortable talking to me because I try to advise them how to work through this difficult marriage. Now, we're talking many, many years, including grandchildren and many children. And I don't think they, and don't get me wrong, it was a difficult thing in a, in a reformed context. This person got divorced two years ago, but I never knew, and I'm surprised. Uh, and this person was lamenting to Fernando how much they re re, uh, regret they did it. But a pastor told them it was biblical. I'm not convinced it would have been. And now they're really, really regretting it. And I just want to say, don't jump at something, even if you think you have a biblical reason. And almost every pastor will sign off on, oh yeah, we can just call that a... Uh, We'll just put that in this big, broad category where we do lots of gymnastics and say, oh, that's desertion. How is it really so different than, oh, she burnt the toast, Deuteronomy 24? <laughs> you know, um, we'll get to that. But I just want to really encourage uh, not thinking that's the answer because the problems will still be with you and go with you. Then it's a lot harder to even try to work on it, especially if there's children. All right, chapter 24. And this is not to condemn those who've done it. It's not the unforgivable sin. And remember, there are biblical places for it. But just be careful, because when you're going through difficult times, Satan is right there. Remember what we saw at the beginning? It's the, it's the seminary of church and state. And so there's going to be such a temptation during those difficult times to call it quits. But it is not going to remove the difficulty. It's just going to be a new version of it. Okay? Um, I should say there's not that there isn't a place for probably separation, certain things if there's physical abuse or other kinds of dangers, um, but the goal is always the gospel and reconciliation over time. Those are hard things to do, but I think if we look at the end of Matthew 19, some are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. 
you know, you could even say, like, if you have a, a spouse who's injured or sick or different things, you're going to be a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. You're going to leave that spouse. But it happens. Actually, sadly, I, I'm sad to hear how many times I've heard a story of a man committing adultery on his wife dying of cancer or leaving her. It's unbelievable. You know, sorry, you're now a eunuch. You honor your vows, you know. Or the other way around, women to the men. There's plenty of stories of women with men. Uh, maybe I'll throw this in here as well and then I'll move on. But, you know, another reason Fernanda spent a long time waiting is she was afraid to marry because she saw so many cases of adultery in Brazil in her church also, including a deacon with another man. Do I remember correctly? And so she's afraid, I don't know, anybody's going to be faithful. And early in her marriage, that's one of the things I had to learn better and work out. Like, I have to go on this visit trip. But she had this sense of insecurity sometimes, and I wasn't sensitive enough to how to reassure her. I didn't, I didn't really recognize what was going on, but later we've talked about it. It's just there's, she's seen so many things. And I'm not sure America is a whole lot different. And this is also, I think, why a lot of kids, don't, even churches, don't bother getting married. Uh, someone who used to come here, his father told him, Man cannot stay with one woman all his life, and he's lived out that belief. So you can see how fundamental and important this is that the church stands for these things. Okay, okay. section 6 of chapter 24, we just have two more. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Wow, how about that? How many times does the, does the session find out about a divorce after the fact? <laughs> but... No, you're not allowed to just decide to get divorced. without. The, that's not just your own personal thing, especially if you were married in the church in covenant with God. Like, you can't just... But now this is true, like, private thing. You can do it for any reason. Um, I would point to uh, 1 Corinthians 7.15 related to desertion. Uh, but I'll, as I read from John Murray, that really seems to be really focused on if your unbelieving spouse doesn't want to stay with you because you're a Christian now. And Mr. Renner, uh, your friend in work who became a believer... That's what happened. The wife said, I don't want to be with you anymore, and left and took everything, right? Because he became a Christian. And um, we would recognize that according to 1 Corinthians seven fifteen as a lawful, allowing her to leave, and he's remarried, we would consider that lawful. Um, but I think, you know, sadly, everything goes too easily with these things. Let me explain the next section here. Bottom of page 160. The confession here makes a strong statement against the autonomy of married couples to frivolously divorce and destroy church and state and certainly would condemn no-fault divorce, quote-unquote, laws. By the way, that didn't used to be a was in our, in our nation, right? Uh, the marriage bond is serious and sacred, not to be entered into lightly and not to be exited unbiblically. Now look at chapter 22 as we go back a little ways. You make a covenant vow, you're expected to keep it. Williamson explains, quote, it is the duty of both church and state to uphold the divine ordinance. Note John Murray's criticism here that desertion should be allowed only to unbelievers. 
Uh, the restrictions, quote, of the confession are far-reaching when it says, such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate, but the failure strictly to confine the liberty of disillusion to the precise conditions prescribed by the apostle in this passage must be recognized, and the loophole left thereby cannot be maintained on the basis of scripture. He's kind of saying, I don't think the confession was specific enough. He's saying it seems like it's allowing at some point, if you almost an unreconcilable difference, if it just can't be that the civil or church government can, can remedy this problem, then there's a place for desertion and then remarriage. He's arguing they're too broad. It should only be the unbelieving deserting party. Uh, but the, the believer is not just allowed to just leave. And there shouldn't be any idea that two believers would divorce each other uh, for unreconcilable differences. Yeah. Um, I, I'm very, pers- I'm very, should I say persuaded, but be careful. I find that very compelling. I wonder about the same thing. Because at some point then it's almost like, well, you know, is there ever a spiritual eunuch in Matthew 19? You know, it almost seems like you can chalk it all up to something, as many pastors do. Some concluding remarks. Okay, so then, and then I will give you uh, um, some concluding Thomas Watson remarks, so stay with me. Okay. First of all, letter A, top of page 161. Don't take entering into marriage lightly. Take living in marriage seriously and do not consider divorce in all situations as your go-to backup plan. If you are asking about what ways you can get out of your marriage, you are asking the wrong question of hard-hearted Pharisees. See our sermons on Matthew 5, 31-32, marriage is meant to be permanent, and Matthew 19, 1-10, never give up on your marriage. And at the time I preached that one on Matthew 19, I volunteered at the beginning. As you know, we're having some challenges. And we're, we're glad we're still together. Amen, Fernanda. Oh, boy, she smiled too. All right. I, I took a risk on that one off the cuff. <laughs> Especially when you didn't feel good today from your pregnancy. <laughs> you did this to me. No, just kidding. Okay. All right, letter B. A little levity to be before moving on. Letter B. You should rather be asking, how do I forgive and invest in preserving my marriage to honor the Lord? Are you willing to be, uh, you know, 1 Peter 3, chapter, verse 1 says, hey, you, you women, uh, you might save your husband by a submissive spirit. I mean, you're, they're told, be submissive. It doesn't mean be abused, but it means, you know, you might win over your husband. They're not saying get out of the marriage. They're saying win the, win the wife, win the, win the husband over. All right. Also, notice that in a sin forbidden by the seventh commandment, larger catechism 139 is, quote, unjust divorce or desertion. So the larger catechism 139, sins that are forbidden by thou shalt not commit adultery include unjust divorce. Session, I think this is one of the most challenging things if the Lord allows his growth to be ready to work with. Most churches don't ask any questions or, oh, well, I'm going to read you a challenging quote by uh, Gordon Clark, by the way, in a minute, and A.A. Hodge. I'm not even sure I know what to do with it, but what I know is I don't, at the end of the day, I don't know that churches, even Reformed churches, are really trying to live up to this. Remarriage in all cases is not your right. King Jesus restricts divorce and remarriage, the latter being what is actually the cause of adultery in Matthew 19. You know, it's not necessarily adultery to have divorced, with, but if it's an unbiblical divorce, the remarriage is adultery. If these restrictions seem harsh, it is because you live in a wicked culture. God says not, to, I mean, let alone the idea of people are supposed to wait before marriage. 
so harsh and unnecessary in these days, you know. God says not to put asunder what he himself joins in marriage, and he hates divorce. Malachi 2.16. At least people should be consulted by that. If God hates divorce, would you please wait? Talk, pray, get marriage counseling. Pastor will be very careful with marriage and remarriage. You know, as, as George Scipione, my late professor, said, I don't have to marry anybody I don't want to marry. Just like Pastor Bell said, I'm not marrying you. And I don't want to lose people in the church. But if I think it's not God-honoring and unbiblical, I don't have to do it. Session's not going to make me do it. You go get married somewhere else, well, we'll have to honor the marriage. But I'm not going to be your blood on my hands. Remember that pastor on KPRZ Radio? I consider myself successful when I get some of you to stop being engaged. (laughs) Not that you'd never marry, but that you'd have a proper uh, yoking. Okay. Letter C. If your marriage is struggling, please... Seek pastoral support through marriage and family counseling. Discipleship in the word. Help can be had. And prevention is worth its weight in gold. And I would say, I'm not saying this is required, but there are husbands and wives who forgive their adulterous husband and wives and they work it out and have a happy, healthy marriage. That's not required. But you can divorce for certain reasons. It doesn't mean you are that you have to. Um, letter D. The confession here is not promoting divorce, but giving restrictions to it to preserve marriage. Quote, the emphasis of these sections is not to make divorce easy, but to stress the permanence of marriage. That's Wayne Spear. The church should be careful to preserve the sanctity of marriage by not countenancing unbiblical dissolutions of it for ungodly remarriages. All right, session. Here we go. If you're like me, it's going to make you gulp. How do we deal with this sometimes if things come up? Gordon Clark soberly states, when the civil law allows divorce for looking cross-eyed or for dyeing the hair another shade, he's kind of joking because that's the thing. These people approaching Jesus in Matthew 19, trying to use Deuteronomy 24, some of the people were teaching at the time, you could, if, you don't like the, if your wife burnt the toast, you can divorce her. Of course, in that time, it was much more of a problem for the women than the men, but you could divorce your wife for any reason. And he's kind of playing off of that. Let me start over. When the civil law allows divorce for looking cross-eyed, for dyeing the hair another shade, the law of God is violated. We might say, or just irreconcilable differences. Oh, well, how about you reconcile? Let's figure it out. Christians, what do we have? If we're new creatures in Christ, what does it say, Paul say in Corinthians? If we are new creatures in Christ, the context is we have the ministry of what? Reconciliation. Of all people, Christian husbands and wives should not be saying we can't reconcile. I go on to quote Gordon Clark. Christians, therefore, and all church courts are obligated to treat such divorces as illegal and as null and void. If people so divorced marry again, the church must regard them as living in adultery and cannot receive them into fellowship. That makes me quiver. That's a really hard thing to navigate. But, but at some point, if it's adultery, it's adultery, right? Would we countenance a man and woman having adultery in our church ongoing? Would we allow for that? No, the church has had to deal with that, including getting rid of some elders in the past who just go to another church and they make them elders, right? But I mean, you know, you can't tolerate that stuff. I'm throwing it out there to challenge us tonight. Is there ever a case for a spiritual eunuch? What's Jesus talking about in Matthew 19? Is there ever a place where it is ongoing adultery? I will say this. 
I will never meet with my father with his wife of adultery. When we have family gatherings or if he ever visits here, he understands she may not join you or I won't out of honor to my mother because it was adultery and it is. A.A. Hodge concurs. By the way, he's never going to, sadly, he's never going to be listening to this. So. Um, if the parties to a marriage, neither would my mother, but, uh, and I don't mean disrespect, but just concerned about they're not going to be struggling with this. A.A. Hodge concurs. If the parties uh, to a marriage unrighteously dissolved marry again, they are not to be regarded and treated by those who fear God as living in those new marriages in the sin of adultery. Divorce is against God's creative and redemptive purpose. Quote, divorce in every case is a confession of defeat and acknowledgement of failure. The Bible allows divorce, not approves it. Moses' law was a regulation, not a justification of divorce. He suffered the putting away, but commanded the bill of divorcement. That's A.A. High. Or excuse me, that's... um, Green, Benjamin Green. Letter E. Your responsibility, heed your responsibility regarding the seventh commandment to preserve marriages. Westminster Larger Catechism 138 says your duties include, quote, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, modesty and apparel, and conjugal love. 139 says sins forbidden include all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereto, wanton looks, immodest apparel. By the way, that's when we had the big exodus in my ministry about a year and a half when I preached on immodest apparel. Uh, There are other issues going on, but that, that was the excuse to leave. Lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays. In summary, Westminster Shorter Catechism 71 and 72 make it clear. It is your duty to preserve your own and your neighbor's chastity in thought, word, and deed. If you look on someone lustfully or draw lustful looks, you are guilty of adultery. That's what Jesus says, right? You know, we're guilty for just looking at someone in a lustful way. By the way, I'm not going to give you the quotes, but Thomas Watson talks about a lot of these things. He does even say, watch out for gluttony and infidelity as cause for uh, fornication and adultery. I mean, he, and he says, yeah, stage plays, avoid them. Now, notice it's qualified. It's kind of stage plays, but he, said, he says most, he quotes a lot of the people, the early church fathers. You know what? We don't go to stage plays a whole lot probably, right? but we sure watch a lot of movies, right? We sure have a lot of TV, and they're warning us most of that stuff is going to corrupt you. Uh, Letter F, divorce is not the unpardonable sin, and singleness is honorable as much as married life is. As Jesus is your true spiritual husband, and marriage to him will never be dissolved, not even in death, although your marriages will be, be sure to find your sense of value and joy in your marriage union and communion with Christ. If people considering entering into or living in marriage would heed these words, there would be much less rampant divorce and much happier living. That is, if you put your hope in Christ and you put your marriage to Christ primary, you're going to be a better husband and a better wife. If you're trying to get everything out of your husband and wife as if they're God or Christ for you, that's a recipe for disaster. You never forgive anything, right? Here are a few very pastoral thoughts from the RP testimony that goes alongside the Westminster Confession of Faith as it relates to being single. And I want to highlight this because I've been in a lot of contexts where, uh, especially at seminary, any single man, there's a lot of 
men after them, especially some of the older guys, just giving a hard time, like, you've you got to be married. Do you know that most people, years ago, they did not go to seminary married. It was considered inappropriate to be married when you're going to seminary. Things have changed a lot, you know. And, you know, uh, if you're not married and to be a pastor, some people act like they can't be a pastor. Of course they can. Uh, but we want to remember that singleness is just as holy and godly as is marriage. And in covenant churches where we are emphasizing marriage for most and children, we do not want singles to feel as if they are second-class Christian citizens of the kingdom or maybe ought to find another church. You know, that's what some churches are. We're the church for singles. We're the church for the elderly. We're the church for the youth. No, everybody should be in the same church. Singles as well. So let me share a few things from the testimony. Number one, marriage is an ordinance of God. However, to be unmarried is also an equally honorable state. And it may be the will of God for a person to remain single. Every effort should be made to submit to the direction of God in this matter and to maintain a chaste and obedient lifestyle. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 8. They also say this, uh, number 17 of this section. We deny that marriage is a more spiritual state than the single life or that it is necessary for eternal salvation. 1 Corinthians 7, 7 8 again. And then number 18, we deny that marriage is necessary for officers in the church, 1 Corinthians 7, 7. Um, okay, so that, you know, you don't have to be married to be a pastor or an elder or a deacon. Yeah? Just a real quick question. Sorry, real quick. But if you are, there are instructions about what kind of a husband and father you need to be. But it doesn't mean you have to be married. Yes, go ahead. What do you mean? Like, how would I know that God is calling me to a single, to be a single person the rest of my life? So long as he doesn't provide you a spouse. Okay. I mean, at the end of the day, right, for all of us, if we're not married, we're called to be single and to live like it, right? You know, uh, whether the Lord has a spouse for you in your future, you know, the will of God, what job am I supposed to take? Those are tough things to answer. You know, we know in God's decretive will, ultimately he has a plan, but we don't necessarily know what it is. Um, often, as Thomas Watson says, providence is the Christian's journal. We only know by looking back, and we see later that was God's will. In the meantime, as long as you don't have a husband or a wife, the Lord has brought to you. But I will say this. Go hear my sermon on Proverbs 18. Forgive me, I always mess up on the verse. Uh, Searching for a new wife was worth it. And the children can say, we can all say as a church about Fernanda. Amen? Amen. He that findeth a wife, obtaineth a, findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. You got it? Thank you. Proverbs 18.22. That'll be on our Christian radio program pretty soon, as well as never give up on your marriage. Um, So finding a wife or a husband is a good thing. And the other thing is, I'll say this, you got to go to the well. Uh, Findeth implies you're going to go try to find, right? So uh, I wouldn't wait for a lightning bolt. (laughs) That's not what you're asking. Uh, You you can't know until you know, you know. Yeah. Well, let me let me let me let me speak. Let me probably speak to you from my own perspective. After I lost my first wife, I had no idea whether I'd be married again, and I was absolutely prepared to be celibate and single the rest of my life. That makes sense. Because I don't know. Cool. Now, when I met Fernanda, I felt like I knew. But then I talked to my elders, and she came and visited, and I just didn't let her go back on the airplane. And you guys all supported me on that. But my but the thing is, is I didn't know for about a year and a half. I think it was a year and a half, and I actually almost gave up. And this pretty lady smiled back at me, but I was about ready to cancel the services. I was done for a while. And I was completely committed. If the Lord doesn't provide the right wife for me, I will not marry in an inappropriate marriage. I will not 
be that example to my children. I'm not going to force something. And there were several people that I thought I was going to be marrying, and then children and I determined, nope. And then there are others that never were too interested in me and the children either. But, you know, there was a few we were pretty far along, and I realized, nope, nope. And I would, I'm going to be single if I, if I, if I need to be. Uh, but as it came up, and it, you know, it may have been I could still be single right now, and I say, as far as I know, at this moment, my call. But that doesn't mean I know for sure. I'm always called to singleness, you know. Yeah. Okay. Letter H. See the hand out. Uh, see the handout. Sorry, that's probably be, too, be one word there. See the handout by Pastor's Greek professor, Dr. Jack Kinnear. Uh I asked him for this a few years ago. Oh, and letter I, I got to fix the font size. Sorry, <laughs> I, this is I added on today. Uh, if you'll see, I did give you an extra handout. It's pretty technical about. Uh, particularly asked for his help on can people remarry after divorce. I used to not believe you could. I believe no one could ever remarry after divorce. Uh, I did a 70-something page paper on this. I did it for Greek class. I got an A because I did good work. But then he showed me later to my presbytery committee meeting with me. I was recognizing I took an exception to the confession at this point. And then the, the credentials committee meets with you before you go examine with the presbytery for your next tests. And they worked with my Greek professor, and his reports to them helped me recognize I was in error. And I changed, and I do agree with the standards, although I still struggle and wrestle with its applications. Um, as they say, ministry is messy. But uh, um, so his logic that he gave them, reading Romans 7 at the time also was working on me. Uh, I won't give you the details of what was all behind it, but I asked him to send me something. Now, he didn't have what they originally used and they didn't have it anymore either and I can't find it in the move. I wish I had it. But he did send me his reflections on some of Matthew 19. He does have a section on the idea that remarriage is allowed in this certain situations. I'm just pointing that, to that for you to look at it if you want to study it in more detail, okay? It's very technical in Greek. I think Josh is going to want to read it. He, he likes to read that stuff. <laughs> um, and, and others may too. But I'm not going to comment on it for now, okay? That's just more support resources. Letter I... This verse is worth closing on, Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. By the way, 1 Thessalonians, I think it's chapter 4, verse 3. I really need to memorize that better. You know, we've been looking at it with sanctification lately. Lately, two things that God says is his will for us in the New Testament. One of them is thanksgiving, but the other one is sanctification. What's the next thing it says in the verse? that we wouldn't commit fornication. So it's pretty powerful that the opposite given of sanctification could be other things, but the opposite expressly given is fornication. All right, letter J. I really want to read this. Before I give you quotes by Thomas Watson, and we'll close, I got to give you this lovely quote by Thomas, uh, excuse me, Matthew Henry, that you know well. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. That's a great quote. All right, but I'm going to give you some Thomas Watson from the Ten Commandments. On the Seventh Commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Just a few things. Uh, boy, he gives a lot of powerful stuff about how to be careful not to commit fornication. You who are some of our newly ones, our new ones to the class, love to have you. I, I feel like I have to give Thomas Watson because every time I do at the end, there's just like this, wow. So I, I feel like I have to, so I'm always searching. Okay, here we go. The thing implied is that the ordinance of marriage should be observed. What's implied positively in the sixth, seventh commandment, don't commit adultery, is that marriage should be observed. 
God instituted marriage in paradise. He brought the woman to the man. Genesis 2.22. God instituted marriage. Notice this. He gave them to each other in marriage. God officiated the first marriage. Think about that with Matthew 19. Jesus Christ honored marriage with his presence. John chapter 2, verse 2. Now notice this. He says, the first miracle he wrought was at a marriage when he turned the water into wine. Marriage is a type and resemblance of the... Uh, shouldn't be mystical. Boy, this, this program fixed, messes up things on me. Mystical union between Christ and his church. Marriage is a type and a resemblance of the mystical union between Christ, Christ and his church. Ephesians 5.32. Certainly may it be full of happy melody musical, but that should be mystical. Um, the, the special duties belonging to marriage are love and fidelity. That is faithfulness, loyalty. In marriage, there is a mutual promise of living together faithfully according to God's holy ordinance. Adultery is a breach of the marriage oath. When persons, come, uh, when persons come together in a matrimonial way, they bind themselves by covenant to each other in the presence of God to be true and faithful in the conjugal relation. Go back to our oaths and vows chapter. That which makes adultery... Sorry, another typo. That which makes adultery as sinful is that it is needless. God has provided a remedy to prevent it. Quote, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Then he goes on to say, another page, to keep ourselves from the sin. Sorry, another typo there. Uh, this is where I was trying to get some stuff in the day before it was time to print. To keep ourselves from the sin of adultery, let every man have his own wife, says Paul. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2 again. To avoid fornication and adultery. Okay, this is a great quote to close. Let me just comment real quick. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. I've heard so many Reformed pastors uh, kind of qualify and say, you know, we've got to be careful about quoting this to young men struggling with fornication and different things. Because if they're doing it now, they're going to do it later. And I understand the concern. But our confession says one of the reasons for marriage is to avoid fornication. And they're referring to the scripture, and Thomas Watson is, has, is highlighting it twice. It's not, it doesn't follow that people who have fornicated are going to be adulterous in their marriages. It doesn't follow necessarily. And in fact, Paul is saying, you know, it's better not to burn, is what he says. Burn with lust. And so I don't, I mean, with all kinds of qualifications, yes. And there still may be, well, that's not the right person to marry. And if you, you know... But we need to recognize that Paul is saying, and our confession is highlighting it, that marriage is an important way to avoid fornication. Go enjoy your husband. Go enjoy your wife. And, you know, isn't that what the Proverbs tell us? Because the Proverbs warn us about adult, the adulteress all the time. But what is the one thing they say? Go enjoy the breasts of the wife of your youth. Go read Song of Solomon together, you know. Okay, I'll move on, but I think that's interesting how much Thomas Watson highlights that, which just sounds so different than what I hear a lot of Reformed pastors say today. I know there need to be warnings and qualifications, but I think that's downplayed more than it should be, frankly. Quote, and this is some really good stuff at the end. Thanks for waiting with me. To avoid fornication and adultery, let every man have a chaste, entire love to his own wife. It is not having a wife, but loving a wife that makes a man love, live chastely. That's an important qualification, what I've just said. It isn't just having a wife, but loving a wife that will cause you to live chastely. 
Pure conjugal love is a gift of God and comes from heaven. But like the vestal fire, it must be cherished that it go not out. Wow, what's he saying there? Sex in marriage, he says, is pure. It's a gift of God. Children, I want you to hear that. Sex is a gift of God. It's part of the command and the creation before the fall. No sex in marriage, no babies. God wants babies. God wants the children in the church. It's a holy thing, Hebrews, if it's in the marriage bed, undefiled. But then he also says, but you got to keep the fire of love going. It must be cherished that it not go out. He's even saying, make sure you're careful to maintain the physical love, not only spiritual with your husband and wife, it's supposed to be an important part of your marriage. And when I was preaching through the larger catechism, and I'll close on this, I know you're, roll, you're, you're taking your bets to see if I actually pull that off. <laughs> um, I preached through the larger catechism on this commandment, and one of the commandments, one of the sermons on the duties required positively was uh, get busy. And among a number of things was make sure you're having regular sex with your spouse. And I always remember we were just joking about it the other day. <laughs> Irma Maxwell came up to me and she won't mind me saying this. Okay, Pastor, I'm going to go home and get busy. <laughs> and I mean, we have to be careful, you know, but there's that proper understanding that men and wives in the Christian church should be enjoying themselves. There needs to be discretion to the whole thing. But uh, this is the kind of thing Puritan churches talked about a lot, our confessions highlighting. And we need to recognize at the end here Sex in marriage is a gift of God, and the flame of that needs to be fanned just as much as spiritual things and emotional things. It all goes together. All right, Josh, you're going to get me in trouble real quick. Now close. So the King James Version ends with burn period on that. Okay. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7, yeah. Yeah, but I think that is the I think that's the idea. Okay, so here's an important hermeneutical uh, thing to remember. Context is key. And the answer is yes in a sense because other scriptures say that fornicators will not be in heaven. But the immediate context, no, I think it's, I mean, it's not that you couldn't give that warning and application, but no, it's the context is he's saying, you know, it's good for people to get married. It's better not to burn in lust. So I do believe that's what is implied by just the word burn in King James, yeah, in the immediate context. So context is always king, yeah. Okay, uh, I have some suggested readings for you and things you can listen to. Some of these are in our library. Um, you're really curious about consanguinity or affinity. I gave you some stuff to read there. Some of it's in our library, John Murray especially. Assigned readings next week, chapter 25 and 26, uh, of the church and of the communion of the saints. I considered splitting it up, but the second part is so short, and I'm going to ask for you guys, we're going to commit to a time to throw something at me and make me end. And if we need to, we'll just continue it for a second week. But I'm going to keep them together because they relate so much and we, we might pull it off. Thanks for waiting with me. Um, I give you some other readings if you're taking the class formally about being the church, some, some articles and stuff to read. Um, and then again, I have given you this extra handout by Jack Kinnear on, on Matthew 19. I'm going to close in prayer. Thanks for bearing with me going long again. Thanks for your great questions and involvement. Uh, Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this time together. We pray that you help husbands and wives, especially in our church and in your church, to be faithful and loving. Help us to be repenting and forgiving. Help us to have the ministry of reconciliation, that we would bless our children uh, as the seminary of church and state. Bless our church to uphold marriage, to encourage reconciliation, to warn against divorce, not to tolerate unbiblical 
divorce and to have the courage to wade through those difficult things. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be upholding and supporting and seeing faithful marriages, working through problems, that the church would be like that. And Lord, that um, we would be a better reflection of Christ and the church. As Paul says, it's an image of Christ in the church. And it's primarily about Christ in the church. And we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are a faithful husband, even when we are not faithful. And we pray that you bless us to be a more holy uh, and reverent bride, saying with the Holy Spirit, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And all your people said, Amen.